Five, score! Rick Five. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Episode 55 of the Squid and Ultimate Lease Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Lease Fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping? Doing okay, Mike. A little uh, bit of an early golf game this morning, unfortunately. So I was up at 4.45. And, uh, well, I got to wake up and I got to get up a couple hours before my tea time and get have my coffee, you know, get ready, get and then go on and shoot a 76. Yeah, guys, guys, hearts are bleeding for you, okay? Like, it's tough. You got to get up to go and play golf. That, that's not going to fly here, Squid, okay? So let's let's sort of put that one okay. off to the side, okay? Like, now, our guest today, <laughs> our guest today is on a little different boat. Our guest today is fresh off coaching the Fort Wayne Comets to the ECHL Kelly Cup Championship, which your son Justin was a part of. He also has a strong hockey bloodline following his father Bruce's footsteps in the coaching world. Welcome to the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show, Ben Boudreau. Ben, first off, congratulations on the Kelly Cup Championship. Have you actually had a chance to savor the moment with a short offseason? You're right back at work. To, to be honest, there's uh, there's a little there's a few consequences that come with winning, and that's uh, an extremely short offseason. So we got about 72 hours to turn the mind off a little bit. I got one golf game in, and uh, and then that was it. And we were back into the offices trying to build for next year. So uh, I'd love to be somewhere with sun, sand, and the beach. And uh, uh, it's just not in the cards. I've also got a, a wife that's uh, eight months pregnant with our second child. So um, also another reason to be back into the office as soon as we can. <laughs> no, no kidding. No kidding. Well, I was just going to say it was a condensed season, but by – by competition, nevertheless, was still very good this year. Will it be a full schedule next year with 27 teams? I know there's a few teams that are planning to bring into the league as well. Yeah, we're uh, every team is is back. I mean, one dropped out, which was Brampton, but we got a new one in Coralville, Iowa. So we're still uh, going to have 26 uh, teams in the league, and um, it's going to be healthy, a full 72 game schedule next year, which I know we're all looking forward to. And even though that we, as the Fort Wayne Comets, played a condensed schedule. 41 out of the 50 games we did play were against two of the same opponents, Indianapolis and Wheeling. So we're welcoming anybody and everybody that's willing to play us next year that isn't one of those two teams. <laughs> yeah, believe me, I had to watch. I had to watch all those games back. So I, I, I'm feeling the exact same way as you are. And uh, although they're in a division, the same division as Cincy and as you guys. So, I mean, we're going to play them seven or eight, nine times probably anyway. Uh, but uh, I'll but you know what? The thing that everybody – I've heard a lot of people say, that, like, well, you only played 52 games and we played 72. But you guys played, like, 52 games in about, what, 75 days, I think, or something? It was, like, crazy. Uh, yeah. Especially our, at the end of the year. Our schedule was so much more condensed. And there, there was a stat that we ended up playing 18 games in 31 days after traveling 8,352 miles in five states. And only five of those games were played on home ice. So, um, you know, no matter what, whatever anybody says, I mean, 
you've still got to win the games that that you've got to play and um for us it was an extremely condensed schedule and uh the last five and a half six weeks of the season was um it, i mean and, and your son justin will be able to tell you rick is i've never been through a grind uh like that before in my entire life and uh you know i i don't know how we we did it it seemed like it was a miracle when all was said and done but we're better men for going through it i'll tell you that fantastic well <laughs> ben we want to we want to go back to the beginning uh, you know, your father, of course, was a well-known player in Toronto and played with the Marauders, played with the Leafs and, you know, set all kinds of records in the minor scoring and is obviously a very accomplished uh, coaching career. But he was playing in St. Catharines at the time, I assume, when you were born. Take us about growing up as a kid playing hockey and maybe explain to the listeners when you realize, we've asked this question of Justin, a lot of the players, when you realize your father did something a little different for a living than other kids. Well, to be honest, I... There was, there was never any realization when I was a kid, when I was with my father, that what he was doing was different because that was the norm for us. I mean, it was very, very normal to, oh, your dad's not in pro hockey. Okay, well, you know, that's that's fine. I mean, it's a regular job. I didn't, you know, you don't really grasp that concept until you're a really older and have people tell you about the, the history and uh, everything there too. So, I mean, growing up in a hockey family, moving was a – was a was a normality i mean i was born in germany my brother in halifax my sister in toronto my youngest brother in mississippi and um you know there was a million stops along the ways and uh we didn't know anything different because that's what was normal for us just growing up in a hockey family and even to this day i'll be 37 years old in november and um you know i haven't been back in the in, in the city of st Catharines or niagara since i graduated college but at the same thing, that is normal when you're involved in the hockey business. I mean, staying in a in a city for longer than three, four years is very uncommon. So, um, you know, I've been used to it my entire life, and it's just been uh, been the norm, and that's all we've ever known. But you don't want to do it yourself right now. That's for darn sure. <laughs> yeah. Especially with a, an eight-month pregnant wife. I, I know what that's like because when I got traded from – Chicago to Buffalo, my wife was, uh, she was about four months pregnant, but we had a two-year-old at the time, and it was like, and then I had to leave. I had to get on a plane and leave, and she was left to do everything by herself. Yeah, it's, Crazy. It, it's not easy moving, but, um, you know, when you're young in your career, you've got to go to the work is and where the opportunities are, and um, the first story of ever getting an opportunity in the East Coast is, um, I accepted a, we, we've got a hockey school in St. Catharines we've had for 39 consecutive years. And, uh, when I was there, the assistant coaching job of the Bakersfield Condors of the East coast hockey league became available. I knew the coach at the time that held the position and I was with him working at our hockey school and he got the job in Hershey. So I applied right away thinking I would just take a stab at it. And I ended up getting an offer and they needed a decision within 24 hours. So I took the job without telling my girlfriend who was back home living in Kelowna, British Columbia. And it was for $15,000. And uh, she can't work uh, in the United States because she didn't have a green card and we were both Canadian. So I flew back and had to tell her, like, uh, hey, honey, I, I took a job for $15,000 in the desert in California. You can't work. And uh, uh, I'm going. <laughs> so you know if you want to come i'm leaving in nine days you know and so it happened all all so quick but you go 
where where um you know the opportunity is and it uh, eventually yeah. kind of uh paid off here as we had stops along the way in virginia beach before we got to uh, fort wayne as well well speaking of opportunities speak maybe ben to your growing up playing hockey and how you started yeah you know you played for mark and you end up playing a little bit of uh, tier two junior type hockey and walk us through all that whole period yeah it was you know, I, I knew I was always destined to be a coach uh, because I was a lot smarter than I ever was talented. I'll, I'll tell you that, but uh, <laughs> um, that's that's really the only reason I was able to scrape back and be a little bit of a suitcase. But like any kid going to junior and I was 17, I was uh, um, tried out for the waxers and I ended up getting uh, getting picked for the club, which was awesome. And when you're 17, you're not used to being the guy that's in and out of the lineup because you were just the captain of your midget team the year before. And, you know, I, it was my first time away with billets and, and I really struggled with it just mentally. I was in a school um, that I didn't know anybody. And, you know, when you're going through adversity and you're doing it alone, it's, it's really tough as a young kid. And, you know, halfway through that season, after playing for the Waxers, my, my father was in New Hampshire with an American Hockey League expansion franchise in Manchester, and they had a, a junior A program. And uh, I ended up making the jump just so I could go through my first junior experience, or at least the second half of my rookie season with with my father there. And my father never had the opportunity to really watch me play as, as my parents split at a young age. So I thought it was a cool and unique opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so I ended up uh, finishing there and um, played in the, the Greater Ontario Junior Hockey League for the, the Falcons and uh, a couple teams just to kind of finish. But um, I always knew that it was really important to get my education uh, before trying to pursue anything in hockey. And believe me, the, the suitcase of the three years that I had in junior hockey, there wasn't a lot of people knocking on my doors with offers. So I ended up going to Belleville to uh, get my education out of the way. And um, it's I've got a little bit of a, a wild and crazy story of how I ended up happening here, even with coaching opportunities, because I, I took three full complete years off of hockey to to complete my schooling. And um, I had a job for the hockey hockey night in Canada, downtown working at the CBC building. And I went to a free agent camp one weekend and just happened to play the games of my life in front of the right people at the right time and signed a pro hockey contract. <laughs> I, I didn't even tell my my dad I was going for, for this camp. And, you know, he, he knew that I didn't play hockey for three years. And when I signed on a Saturday night, I ended up scoring six goals one game. And uh, the coach of the Flint Generals came down and said, hey, you know, we got a contract to offer you. And I'm, I'm thinking like, fuck, are, are you serious? Like, I got to go back to work Monday. <laughs> You know, and I'm signing a pro deal. And I remember the conversation. I called them the next morning and said, hey, I just just signed my first pro hockey deal. <laughs> like his response, it wasn't like a typical, oh, that's congratulations. He's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You don't even play anymore. <laughs> so, it, it was it was kind of uh, like, uh, like what like what happened? Like, fill me in. Like, how did this all go about? And it was, um, you know, it was. It was just funny that we stepped out, got lucky in the, the moment. And um, and then after that, after I signed, it was awesome because he had gotten the job at the Capitals, got me into rookie camp. I was playing alongside Ovechkin. And that lasted about three shifts with the Capitals until I threw a pass into his skates. Then Ovi asked me to, to replace me with somebody else <laughs> in rookie camp. But, um, you know, that went into the American Hockey League uh, um 
uh, exhibition game. I got into there in, in the Bears camp. I scored in my first goal with Hershey, uh, you know, after my father just won a Calder Cup uh, with them and got promoted to Washington. So that was a pretty cool story. And, you know, that's that was the start to my pro career. And uh, it wasn't a long, extensive one, but I was happy for every second I got a chance to lace up the skates. Like, did you, were you skating those three years you were off at all? You, you were uh, doing Every Thursday night uh, at the Memorial Arena downtown in Belleville, and I must have had a few beers before every single game. So skating, uh, I know I was gliding a lot, but skating is a whole nother uh, <laughs> question. That's, that's a remarkable. Hey, Squid, how about that first story? Like, that's unbelievable. That's pretty damn uh, amazing, actually, being off for three years and, and then going to a camp and lighting it up, getting a contract. Yeah. yeah. Light, lightning in a bottle. It was it was the right time because, uh, you know, you, you go to these camps and you, you play three or four games. We had a Friday night game um, and I played well. And then the Saturday is when all the scouts and everybody comes and our team ended up winning 7-1 and I had six goals and an assist. <laughs> so I don't like I don't think I've ever done that in my sleep before, let alone do it in front of a, uh, <laughs> some prospective coaches. So it was like I said, um, I still think back to that moment. It was in Niagara Falls and um, I wouldn't be here today unless I really got an opportunity to play some pro hockey. And uh, I look back and I just think how the stars aligned at the right opportunity, not only for playing, but for coaching as well, too. So I'm extremely lucky. And to call myself now a Kelly Cup champion, looking back on how hockey is, is sort of uh, paved its, its way for me to get here is, believe me, I feel like I'm one of the luckiest guys that have ever been uh, um, lace, got a chance to lace up a pair of skates. So now, Ben, when when did you kind of like when did the coaching really come into your mind? Like, in other words, you know, I I'm not interested in playing. I I, I think I can be a good coach. Like, when exactly did that happen, and then where did it go from there? Well, I never like. I never grew up saying, well, my dad's a coach. That's something I want to do because, you know, that's something my dad did. But I grew up being in a hockey family, and hockey was something I right. wanted to be a part of. And that's that's first and foremost mm -hmm. because we've got a passion for the sport, and that's what I grew up knowing is, you know, I love hockey. And uh, I got a chance to play in Europe in Paris, France. And I would, when, I, when I finished, I was 28, and I came home, and um, I got an opportunity to work at a hockey school. The same guy who, who set up this free agent camp where I signed playing hockey asked me if I wanted to come be an assistant coach for a junior B hockey team at a private hockey academy in the Okanagan. Um, you know, and I said, listen, I'm single at the time. Um, here's, here's another opportunity to stay involved in hockey, but it was a, it was a life experience. I'm going to live in the beautiful Okanagan and the British Columbia uh, mountains, and we'll just kind of see what happens with it. It wasn't here's my chance to become a coach and, and do this. No, this was a life experience. And I got, got to be able to use hockey, you know, as, uh, you know, as one of the main reasons uh, for, for getting there. And, you know, that first year turned into two years as at a hockey academy. And then it was, mm -hmm. wow, I can relate to these kids. And I've, I've got development uh, ability because we've had hockey schools and they're listening to me and it's making an impact. And then I started to convince myself that I could be a coach. And, you know, a lot of the people that do become coaches, they've got these great playing careers and great, you know, minds and playing pedigrees. And I, I didn't, I knew I could think the game well, but it wasn't validated through my playing career. And um, like I said, uh, two years at a, a hockey academy and, 
again, right place at the right time, get the resume in when somebody else uh, got promoted. You know, uh, I had somebody take a chance on me, which was Bill Scott of the Edmonton Oilers, the assistant general manager at the time. But, you know, I think it was a pretty low risk investment for them. 15 grand just to uh, throw a spot for 10 minutes, <laughs> 10 months. The kid doesn't work out, <laughs> kick him to the curb. But, um, you know, they must have uh, liked what I did because they offered me a contract in year two and then again in year three. And, you know, you just kept on honing your craft. And, you know, I, I remember him saying is, our coach, Eric Veyu, he left after the second year. And I said, well, you know, can I put my name in the hat for, for being a head coach? And I had really only done it uh, as the assistant for two years. And he said, you know, when you become the head coach, you want to be, you want to be overripe. Like you're ready to be picked. Like you're sitting there. You don't want to think, you know, what it takes to coach. You want to know that somebody's passed you over and your time is waiting. And, you know, I, I remember when he told me that because when it, when it was my time, and I went through my first year. I still remember thinking, like, fuck, there were still so many things I, I, I had to experience for my first time that threw us for curveballs that in year two I was so much better for that I couldn't imagine that if I was given that opportunity a few years back, I, I probably would have been in a world of hurt just as far as you needed to ex go through the experiences to develop your own ideas and be confident in the way you want to do things. And it took me five full seasons as an assistant coach uh, in the ECHL to be given an opportunity. And then it took a, a year one was, was, you know, otherwise a, a success during the pandemic, but we still laid up, made a lot of mistakes and it took us into year two before we really felt a hundred percent confident in your own ability to run, uh, run a bench. And it ended up, uh, you know, in the best way possible and winning the last game of the season. Well, there's, there's a couple of things I wanted to, you, you've touched on a couple of things I, I wanted to address with you. One of them was the, the biggest adjustment you made to coaching from playing. And for you, especially Ben, with no, no offense to you, but with not having a particularly strong background, and that shouldn't matter, but let's face it, until you prove yourself, you're on a short rope in the eyes of management, the fans, and most importantly, the players. There's no, there's no question. Um, don't get into this business if, if you want uh, commitments or you want to make this a, a longevity of a, of a career because, you know, unfortunately, you know, you're only as good as your last game in this business. And, uh, you know, when you're on these short-term deals, I mean, starting coaching in the Okanagan and then seven years in the coast, that's, that's going to make nine straight years coaching on a one-year deal and once once you add a kid into the mix once you get married i mean you stop thinking about yourself and you start worrying about where the next uh, meal's coming from but um you know for me if if i ever got fired when i was single i could handle myself i i could find somewhere to live i could get a new job mm -hmm. but now when you've got people to look after and your responsibility um you know mm -hmm. the um, the commitment that you want is is to be somewhere that you know you can develop a program, you can start a program and see it through to the end here for uh, for a while. And I'm in that process for the first time in my career is negotiating a deal where hopefully we can set some roots down here for a while unless it's a move up the ladder. So um, for us, the, the one thing we definitely want to do, especially with, with where our family is right now, is we want to look at being here long term. And the only reason we leave uh, is on our own volition. And that's because we're going up to a three-letter league, not the four-letter league of the ECHL. Well, the second part of that question I was going to ask is, wouldn't I ask this all the time of players? So you're the first coach we've asked this one of. So you're, this is a good one for you, Ben. 
Was there a game, a special moment, an encounter with a player? You're defining moment, if you will, that A, and you've already ad addressed two of these, I can do this, and number two, they're listening to me. Well, I think one of the biggest defining moments, and it might might be a proud dad, dad moment here for Rick. I shared this uh, on, on the, the line here with him the other day, but um, when Cincinnati opted out, uh, all their players became free agents, and we had decided to play. And Justin was a guy that I had seen for three consecutive years. I knew that he was a tough kid. I knew he was a great leader. He was big. He scored some uh, goals against us that you remember you're saying, geez, if I ever had an opportunity to get somebody like that, um, we would. And when they opted out, it was, you know, some phone calls back and forth for some weeks. But I just remember when Justin agreed to come to Fort Wayne, how happy we were. Like we landed like this was this was a big deal for the Fort Wayne Comets, having the mm -hmm. ability to sign Justin Vibe. And um, you don't know how good somebody is until you have the chance to get him into your locker room and see how he reacts amongst the players. And it was like a laser beam. Guys were instantly attracted to this um, guy who's been there. He's done that, but he treated everybody on the, the same type of level. And, you know, he'd been a captain in Cincinnati for a long time. And um, you saw why he had been a captain just his leadership abilities were second to none, but they were natural. Nothing was forced. It just was who he was. And, um, you know, he, he did it without a letter on his sweater. He just, he knew it was a temporary stop over here in Fort Wayne until the team got back going. But, you know, our leadership group was a pretty good one, but we did have some issues with one of our veterans as far as his body language and how he was accepted amongst the team and you know we had scratched him once and then it, it was a three game scratch and then it was a kick him off the trip for the last game of the season kind of thing because there was internal issues amongst the the teammates and mm -hmm. it all culminated at the end of the season i removed uh, the assistant captain um or the a from his sweater and he was an eight-year tenured comet and he was eventually going to see his jersey in the rafters but uh, it wasn't the popular move uh, to do amongst the fans in the organization, but it was the right move to do to remove the A from, from the sweater of a long-tenured captain and give it to Justin um, heading into the playoffs. And, uh, you know, it wasn't any personal feelings. It was just something that needed to be done, but it was something that he earned. And to watch him hoist the cup, you know, in a rival sweater, um, you know, as uh, ended up coming in with no expectations and walking away as one of the leaders of this team just because of his natural ability. I mean, I told Justin this is he's changed my life forever. You know, I mean, he's one of 23 guys on the roster that that's done it, but he's had a giant impact in my life. And, and I don't know which way yet, but I'm going to look back at this season, something I'll always be proud of, something I'll always remember, and definitely something I'll always try to use to, to better my career. And if it wasn't for him, I don't know if I'd ever be in this position. Um, and I mean, I can say that a lot about a, 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 about a lot of other guys as well, too, on that team. But, you know, for that veteran presence, the oldest guy in my team, I mean, I told him it, it was unbelievable. He's got no idea how he's changed my life for the better for for the rest of uh for, for as long as i live anyways and um sometimes you don't know that as a player you just show up to the rink and you do what what comes natural to him but what came natural to him was was gonna have an everlasting impact uh for me and and my family for as long as we live squid the uh well uh, that's fantastic because uh well i, mean, I know him pretty good and <laughs> 
and I know he's I know he's a good leader and, and stuff, and I know he loves the game and. I mean, the passion he has for the game. I mean, you can see him blocking shots and, you know, getting down in front of one-timers and that sort of thing. I mean, that just tells me that, you know, there's a kid who really, really wants to win and doesn't, doesn't want to lose and uh, that sort of thing. But, uh, no, I, I'm very proud of him, not just as a hockey player. I'm proud of him for what he is. The fact that he went to the U.S. program – Got a scholarship, went to Miami, Ohio, graduated, did everything. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I know Mike and I have had several people on. And one of the things I always talk about is how good the ECHL is now compared to what it was like, say, when I coached and won in 87 and when your dad coached and won in 89. And I'm wondering if down the road if this isn't something that, becomes a three-tier system like baseball with the National Hockey League. I, I, I really think it's got the potential to do that. And you've seen it with a few teams now. I mean, the Toronto Maple Leafs have put a ton into their farm system in Newfoundland. Montreal is just introducing their new farm team here in Trois-Rivières. And um, I really think mm-hmm. if they're able to show some show some signs of uh, success and really development that I think there's going to garner more interest from um, the NHL and the American Hockey League. And, you know, some affiliations are better than others. And, uh, you know, one thing that I think we continually try to prove to everybody is how good this league is. And I don't think Mm -hmm. we get the recognition we really deserve because there's some great stories here. There's some great people. And uh, at the end of the day, there's some great hockey players. And this isn't just a league that anybody can jump into as a last resort. It's an extremely talented league and uh, uh, one that I'll be grateful that gave me my first opportunity. Well, I was going to say, Ben, uh, there are currently 16 countries represented in the National Hockey League. And as the game continues to branch out in the different parts of the world, as we're seeing, that number is going to only go up. I mean, therefore, the maturation process to succeed at the pro level is going to be essential to as the players continue to get younger by the year. Therefore, going forward, as a feeder league, the ECHL's level of play can only accelerate in the development of prospects. I suspect you'd agree with that, but can you expand on that? I think everybody's always looking to, to develop now, especially the way the, the hockey's been trending lately. I mean, there's so much investment uh, in the youth. I mean, there, there's a big-time youth movement, and you can just see it in the average age of every NHLer. Um, you know, and, and I think when you have youth, uh, one of the things is you're going to have late bloomers. And, uh, you know, if you're not projected the way all the top projections usually go, I mean, that's why guys, I wouldn't say toil in the minors, but they really develop their craft and hone their craft. And uh, some guys develop differently at the age of 24. Some guys develop uh, differently at the age of 18. And um, I still think that uh, you've got a long career ahead of you. And it's the ones that never give up uh, uh, that find their way way to the top and um, to the professionalism in this league is second to none. The atmosphere in some of these games. I mean, if nobody's ever seen a game in a Fort Wayne Comets, I mean, you had ten and a half thousand people packed into the building. Um, the the atmosphere is 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 second to none. And I I say this growing up in a hockey family in Canada, there would be tough. Uh, places where where you can't even understand the environment. I mean, I think maybe the London Knights is the only OHL team that could reciprocate that type of environment um, that the Comets have. And I, 
And the people of Fort Wayne, they may not know the NHL, but the Comets are the NHL to them. They are the cream of the crop. If you're a Fort Wayne Comet, I mean, you're a hero to the local people here. And um, it's it's an unbelievable place to play. It's an unbelievable place to develop. And, you know, if, if any NHL team really uh, wanted to develop some of their guys, there's some great teams that where they could go down there and do just that. Well, just think about Fort well, Wayne. See, oh, go ahead, Squid. I see a lot. Sorry, uh, Ben. I see a lot of players, you know, that are drafted. They sign actually NHL deals, and they start out in the East Coast League. And uh, you know, I mean, it, it's one of those things that when you're you're 20 years old, you're 21 years old, you might not be ready for the NHL or the NHL or even the American League for that matter. I think the East Coast League is, is a, or ECHL, I shouldn't say East Coast League because it's not called that anymore. Um, it's, it's a perfect place for those players to hone, like you said, hone their craft. And with teams spending so much money now into player development, then why not why not take advantage of that and use the, the ECHL? Yeah, I mean, it just makes perfect sense. Every NHL team signs entry-level deals. And if you've got a first-line guy in junior at the age of 19 signing a three-year deal, it is extremely difficult for him to crack the American Hockey League as a first-line guy in the American Hockey League. Instead, they end up being turned into third or fourth liners, and they may not get the minutes or the opportunity uh, that they deserve because there's guys that have been doing it for years ahead of them that are already in that position. So mm -hmm. if you're a first-line guy, it's tough to develop where you're supposed to go playing a third or fourth line role where if you're not going to have those top six minutes that you normally would have in junior, that's where you've got to go to the East Coast and play the top six minutes. Um, and that's where I think the three-tier system, and, and we've seen it in goalies uh, more common than not, that they play year one, year two, they're in the American League, and year three or four, and then they're making the NHL. And, uh, you know, it's had almost 700 graduating players in 30 years. So, I mean, there is still light at the end of the tunnel, and I think if you use your farm system wisely, it's a it's a great learning tool for a lot of different people and teams. Now, is it just a matter of time, Ben, before we see the NHL is fully engaged with with the league and all 32 teams will have sponsorship? I mean, I, I hope so. I think so. I mean, they're always looking to get bigger and better, and I think it's just a matter of time before uh, before they do that. Now, um, besides being drafted and players, teams being supplying players, how do players end up in the ECHL? What I'm looking for is how do you recruit players? You have to get down and dirty. I mean, there, there is no easy secret <laughs> yeah. to recruiting players because what I'm doing, 25 other coaches plus their American Hockey Leagues are trying to help players get there. So you've got to be able to sell like you're a used car salesman. What do you need? When can I get you in it? Give me the paper to sign on the bottom uh, line, but you, you've got you've got a few different areas. I mean, one, you're always going to look at the American Hockey League of of players that don't get re-signed. I mean, that should be your cream of the crop. You're going to look at the East Coast guys, um, you know, that are available, veterans that are going to be available, college graduating players, all the NCAA Division One schools, even some Division Three schools all the Canadian universities, players maybe in Europe looking to return back. And um, I mean, literally, you, you've got to lift every single rock. You've got to uh, cross every single track. And I mean, because there's so many people that you're recruiting against that for every first line center position, there's 25 other teams that need that first line center. So, I mean, you may be talking to a hundred centermen 
you know, and, and you may not get, uh, you know, one of them, you know, because everybody else is doing the same thing. So, I mean, you've got to have a backup plan uh, for your A, B, C, and D. And, and it's, there, there's a ton of time. And that's why, you know, myself, I put in a long day at the office. We had just won the cup just over a week ago, but there's, there's no honeymoon. There's no time off your feet <laughs> up and the beach or nothing. I mean, if you want to be successful the following year, you've got to recruit because everybody else is doing it, especially the 12 teams that did not play this past season. Yeah. You beat, you got to beat the bushes really, really hard. I, I mean, I remember doing it in the eighties and or in the nineties rather. But also, I think one of the biggest things that, that I got was the ability to go to Toronto and Buffalo's. Well, we had an agreement with Buffalo, but not a solid one with Toronto. But I go to both of those camps, and anybody who was there on a tryout who didn't, you know, sign and end up in the American Hockey League, I had a chance to get them to Charleston. And so there was. You're right. I mean, it's it's nonstop. It's kind of you're on the phone. I mean, I remember being on the phone seven, eight hours, nine hours a day, just call after call after call, trying to get players to come play there. And, and it's not easy. It's, uh, it's, it's sometimes a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. You know, one of the things actually, Rick, is um, when you're a Canadian hockey player, or generally the, the hockey market is, is – in the north you know in, in states like minnesota wisconsin michigan and you know obviously every canadian player knows what the winners are all about and when you're living in a warm climate like charleston south carolina and that was the one team i played for in the echl it's extremely attractive to want to get out of your comfort zone in the north and say listen we, we've got foley beach right down the 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 way here you're going to show up to the rink in in shorts and sandals on a Monday in January and by 1230 you're at the the local Muni playing 18 holes with your best buddies and you know it's such a lifestyle change that I think it's extremely attractive for a lot of good northern uh, hockey players and when you live in the south there's some great markets you've got Charleston South Carolina Fort Myers Florida Orlando Jacksonville Greenville Atlanta um, you know, you're looking at places where you're paying good, hard-earned money to go for a vacation, and then you're having a coach saying, wait, you're going to pay me to go and play hockey there and, you know, and then pay my living expenses? I mean, where do I sign? And then here we are in Fort Wayne, Indiana, you know, that's very flat. Um, you know, it's got, it, you know, there isn't a beach here for two and a half hours, you know, in every single which way. So, Rick's selling point when he was the coach of Charleston, I can guarantee you, was much different than my selling point in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And you have to get creative. Um, and, you know, for us, our biggest selling point is uh, the fact that we're the second longest tenured minor pro hockey franchise. We're going to play in front of 10,000 people, which is the league leading attendance uh, every single year. And you're going to have an opportunity to win because we always got that great ability to recruit because everybody uh, wants to play in front of that many fans. So it's kind of funny how um, everything ends up uh, playing out. But uh, recruiting, for one, if you can't recruit in this league, you're not going to have a ton of success. Well, by the way, speaking of yeah, which. That, oh, go ahead, Scott. Well, I think that's one of the big things. Sorry, Ben, is that, I mean, you have to be good at it. You have to convince people that this is where they should be. And uh, obviously, you're able to do that. If you were able to get my son to go there, 
then you're pretty damn good at it. <laughs> but, I mean, in Charleston, in Charleston, yeah, we, we had an advantage to a degree, but still we were limited to the amount of Canadians we could have too. And, uh, you know, back then as far as visas and that, but I mean, still, I don't care where you are. I think you still have to convince those players that this is the best place for them and I'm going to look after them and you're going to be well taken care of by me and by by our entire staff. And I think that's that's very important. Well, yes. I'm going to say to you, Ben, to, just to add to your Fort Wayne pitch for anybody, any player who's listening, by the way, the city of Fort Wayne, the, the game has been a part of the community since the 50s. And think about this. Only the original six, along with the Hershey Bears, have played in the same city continuously with the same name longer than the Comets. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's so unique. I mean, the history is so great that uh, you see it. Like when you walk in the locker room, they've got the team pictures all the way back to the 50s. And, you know, there's no such thing as setting records when you're a Comet or when you're coming in there because somebody has been there and done that. We've had 10 championships. Um, you know, it's a, you know, but at the same time, the program has sold itself because you've got that tradition of success. You've got that tradition of expecting when you play on a, a Friday night at 8 p.m. in Fort Wayne, you're going to have nine, ten thousand 10,000 people, and there's going to be important people in the building. There's going to be a lot of fans. And, uh, you know, if you're in the ECHL, it feels like you're playing in the NHL. The, the, the Coliseum walls, the fan support, somebody sees you at the supermarket or out at the restaurant, they want to buy you dinner. I mean, you know, you're a big fish in a small pond here, and it's not the other way around. And so a lot of people like, like that, and they're attracted to it here in Fort Wayne. And for myself, the, the feeling, I mean, I, 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 I got that feeling my first game as a, as a head coach pro is I didn't realize how big it was in the city until I started really approaching my first game. It was, it was going to be the first game of the season. And, you know, the owners and the broadcasters say, you know, the first one's really worth five. Like, it's really worth five games. I, I don't care what happens after the fifth game. You got to win the first one, you know. So the pressure was coming. And then, you know, oh, it's a sellout. And every person who, who is involved with sponsorship, um, or support every business in the city. I mean, all the people that have invested money into this hockey team are there. Uh, the owners got five different brothers. I mean, you know, their families. And so we walk out onto the bench, you know, after everybody stopped in the coach's office, wished us luck. And I must have shaked 30, 40 hands by that first game just from the time that people started getting into the gate. And I was like, holy shit, there's a lot of people here, you know, well, ben, let me that have paid to invest into this team. I better not let them down here. Ben, let me and- stop you right there before you go any further, because what I want to get to is that, and just expand on this, because you're going on the right track here, but like Kalamazoo, Cincinnati, tell us all these places that we know from when we were growing up. Talk about maybe, and you're touching on here, the fabric that these teams have as part of the community, or are they part of it? And any of the guys our age, anybody can always identify these towns with hockey teams. So it puts them on the map. But the second thing I want to get out of you is the priority to have players involve themselves in the community. Do you do that? And do the players are part of all of this? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You have to have to give back to the community. And, um, you know, there's I mean, one, yeah, you do things with your partners and your sponsors, but you have to do things uh, as well to give them support that support the people that support you. You know, and it might just be, uh, you know, some some people going or a couple of players going to read books. 
uh, you know, at the schools or, you know, doing uh, showing up and helping a blood drive every single Christmas. Uh, we'll get a bunch of gifts and we'll give them give them away to the local kids at the hospital. I mean, just anything you can do in your community to give back to the, mm -hmm. the people that support you, I think, is extremely important because um, you you know this as as far as anybody, Rick. You don't do it alone. Uh, there's a million people that help you out along your way, and it can't be it can't be one sided. Uh, for everything you take, you've got to be able to give, and and that's how you create a really good working partnership with everybody. And and believe me, if your if your community doesn't like you, you're not going to have success in minor pro hockey. <laughs> well, I can tell you one thing that Justin raved about how he, how the players were treated in Fort Wayne. He he was absolutely blown away by the support that from the, from the staff, from the fans, from, you know, the, the owners and everything and, and just what they did for the players. He, he was blown away by it. He really was. And, you know, I think if you go into all those, the, the towns like Fort Wayne and the places that have been around a long, long time, that's what you get. And then they give back to the community and they get it back twofold. What? Yeah, no, hundred. Uh, Rick, same thing. I mean, you know this. I mean, there's not a lot of money coming in. There's no TV deals or anything like that. Like, you need these people to survive. I mean, you, you yeah. need these people. You need the community to get, get around behind it. Unless you've got an owner with extremely deep pockets that isn't afraid of losing millions. And believe me, these days and age or these, uh, you know, these times, there's not a lot of people that like losing money. And so it's extremely important to have these people because their their main revenue is ticket sales. So if if you're not the hot ticket in town or you're not trying to, to be active out in the community, making sure your name's out there or giving back to the people that support you, uh, if you don't have their support, you'll be gone real quick. And this team has been around for seven straight decades. We just fifth or, finished our 69th season. So they've got the, the community aspect uh, figured out pretty well here. Well, as an example, now, uh, besides selling more seasons tickets, after winning this championship, any plans the organization has to give back to the community? Or how, how will they capitalize on this or try and monetize it, actually? Uh, to, to be honest, I mean, a lot of it is is sales. And, uh, I mean, we've got a, is an extremely busy office of people trying to get sponsorships. But already we've had a lot of limited um, contact with people in the pandemic like we we couldn't go and visit people or do a lot of in-person experiences and so um, for us we want to make up for lost time and so I know that people in our front office is getting extremely busy planning uh, planning certain things and get-togethers and uh, appearances uh, all over not only just with sponsorships but you know our local mm -hmm. hospitals that help us out in our schools where the kids uh, are always coming out to support and the local junior teams and everything uh, along those lines. And I mean, it, it's going to start, we're going to take the cup to a golf tournament that the local junior hockey team here is uh, um, supporting because we always see them supporting us and that organization and the practice rink always giving back. And they said, Hey, can you bring four guys and give us a, you know, and bring the cup and help, help us sell some tickets. And it said, yeah, where, what, what else can we do? Like, what else can we help you guys with along the way? And those are the types of relationships that you need in order uh, to thrive in, in any minor, minor league city. Squid. Ben, I, I want to touch on something that what I think is very important and I'm probably sure that you do what you're going through right now. You know, you just won a championship. 
negotiating a new contract. You got to have a partner that at home that's pretty strong mm -hmm. and uh, pretty supportive uh, to get through these things. And I know myself, uh, the amount of times that I had to just get on a plane and leave and go to another city, and my wife was left with children and had to sell the house herself and get the movers and everything all by herself. I mean, that, that is so important. And if you don't have that support, that makes it even that much more difficult, does it not? Yeah. You know, what a lot of people ask me too, like, hey, what it's like growing up in a hockey family. Your dad was an NHL coach or hopefully still is at some point. But, you know, what's the major piece of advice that he gives you? And a lot of people are thinking, you know, is it a four-check piece of advice? Is it something else? No, the first thing, and I remember sitting in the parking lot telling him when I got the opportunity to start coaching, you know, he said, Ben, if you want to make a career out of it, if you want to move your life from Ontario out west and chase this dream, you're going to need a good support system and a good wife who understands. And, you know, unfortunately, my parents didn't stick together. There's trials and tribulations they didn't get through. I mean, my dad played in 539 cities in 17 years in the minors. And <laughs> she, she couldn't take it uh, at this point with three kids and their marriage didn't last. And, you know, and I, I see the same thing. I've got a wife. Um, you know, beautiful wife where we met in college and um, found a way to get together later, but she has supported me. She's given up everything that she's ever done in her life to support my dream and be there for me. And, you know, she's, she's blessed me with a beautiful child and she's eight months into bringing her second one in. And, you know, if I were to tell her tomorrow that I'm taking a job in Timbuktu because that's the best opportunity for my career, we'll start packing boxes and she'll be there a hundred percent behind me. And, um, you know, I look back and, and everything that I've done and I get credit for, you have to look back and say, this is, this isn't mm -hmm. possible with the people that you share it with. And for me, where I lay my head every single night, I mean, my wife has been incredibly supportive. I mean, I want to give her the world and, you know, they see the lows all the time, all the lows from the coaching you're going to experience with them, but they don't get to necessarily enjoy all the highs. Uh, at the same time. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, more than anybody, Rick, that's been through it, you need that support system at home. And, and it's so unique to find somebody that understands what you're about to go through. I mean, <clears throat> I'm 36 turning 37. I hope I've got a 20 plus uh, career out of coaching. But when's the last time somebody signed a 20 year coaching career in the same same city? It doesn't happen. You know, maybe a 10-year deal on Rick's advice, if, if I could ever get that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, no, we're going to... Yeah, take yeah, take we're gonna money, take 10 years. <laughs> yeah, we're going to move. There's going to be tough times. Um, I've yet to be fired, which is inevitable. And I've I've understood that. I, mm -hmm. I, I get it. I know that it's eventually going to happen that somebody says, Ben... You're no longer welcome here. We're moving on. And I've been fortunate where it hasn't happened in nine years yet, but I know it's coming. And at that moment, you're going to need that person more than you've ever needed them before. And, uh, you know, all the, the stories I've ever heard, you know, if it wasn't for my my wife, Carla, I can guarantee you I wouldn't be here today. And so um, it's the first person I think of of telling any sort of good news because they deserve it the most. But well said. It's so it's so important, Ben. It's very very important. I, I you're right. I, you hit the nail right on the head there because, I mean, I've been through it and uh, I know what it's all about. And I've had the same strong woman behind me for 40 years now, 
And uh, you need that. Trust me. It's, uh, Can you imagine it's that more poor one more after 40 years? Oh, shut up, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I don't think people realize how important that is. You know, in, a, in the life of a hockey player or a coach or whatever the heck you might be, I don't think people understand how just how important that that partner at home is. Yeah, and if it if it wasn't for her, at the age of thirty six, I'd already look like my father at the age of sixty five. And believe me, it's not a good thing. So she keeps me in track. I'll tell you that. You know, your dad's going to hear this, by the way. But the other thing is, but when your dad was on the show, he did tell us how proud he was of you and everything you'd accomplished so far as any father would be, but he was willing to offer an opinion, but preferred to let you find your own way. So just so you know, that's what he did tell us on the show one day. But one of the things along the line, Squid, you can jump in here in this one too, is maybe touch on some of the things about coaching that people would be quite surprised that it has come across you, Ben, throughout your career. And uh, Squid, your thoughts also. Oh, man, the things that I've learned coaching is, I'll tell you this, I don't have every every answer. You can't pretend to have every answer and I'm not always going to be right. I mean, there's humility in this game, and you have to yeah. Yeah. Uh, accept all your mistakes, and, and you've got to learn from them at the same time. You can't be stubborn, and you've got to listen to your guys. And especially this day and age, I, I mean, I think the days of, you know, do as I say, not as I do, you know, yeah. my this is my way only. I mean, you know, I ask the opinions of, of a lot of players. I ask Justin a lot of times, hey, I'm thinking about making this decision. What are your thoughts? And he'd give me his thoughts. And, you know, it might change your mind. It might not. It might validate your decision. It might not. But at the end of the day, you're going to make decisions. Mm -hmm. You're going to live with the consequences. And what you do with that is ultimately whether I think makes you a good coach or not. And um, believe me, in my first two years at the helm, there, there is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, decisions that I made that didn't end up working out. And there was, you know, what I'd like to think more decisions I made that did end up working out. But you're looking for a group of guys that's going to respond either way. They're going to respond when you acknowledge your mistake and then they're going to uh, respond when you know that you've made a, a good decision one way or the other. So I think, um, you know, having humility in, in yourself, uh, understanding that, you are too a person and you're not always going to be perfect. Like every player is not going to be perfect. It's a journey everybody takes together and you grow together and hopefully um, you grow in, in the, the right direction. And that's how I felt we did with our team is we got a bunch of guys together that had never been there before, but their character traits were everything we were looking for. We had captains, we had winners, and we all learned from all of our mistakes that we made throughout the season. And that finished with a good six and one run to close out the Kelly cup. And uh, I think our group was so much better from it because I listened to them as much as they listened to me. And, and we really learned uh, from each other. I think that's a big thing is like, I mean, for me, when I got my first coaching job, the first thing I did, we had Rick Dudley on the other day and we were, we were talking about it and Rick coached me in Buffalo. I bought five books uh, on sports psychology, two on sports psychology. The other three were just regular psychology. I read the heck out of those books and it really helped me to, to understand each individual player, which ones I had to kick in the ass, which ones I had to pat on the back. And then I think the biggest thing is communication. As long as you communicate with your players and they know where you stand, and you're right. You're not always right. You're not always going to be right. you got to admit when, you know what, yeah, maybe we, we should try something different. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's with your, you know, core group of leaders. 
And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's so important to have the ears of your leaders and have them trust you, I think, more than anything else. Because then, you know, they're going to go through the wall for you. They're going to make everybody else go through that same wall. Well, I was going to say, ideally as a coach, and this is another question for both of you again, you'd like to be loved and respected by your players. But if given the choice, Ben, would you be rather be loved or respected by your players? I think I think respected because uh, you know, I just went through this where I, I had some really really difficult decisions to make uh, come playoff time and you know um, mm-hmm. uh, the one thing my father always told me I mean the other piece of advice outside of finding a good woman is uh, you know he's got a quote along his desk uh, the many many years he coached and he says you know. <clears throat> I don't know what the key to success is, but the key to failure is trying to make everybody happy. So yes. if you coach trying to make everybody happy, I mean, and and to be liked, you're going to find yourself you've made so many wrong decisions or or for everybody that you try um, pleasing, you've, you've already pissed off two other guys. And I, I think respect, having the guts to make the decision that's right, but not popular I think that is a big one that especially that I learned because as a young guy, you want to be liked. It's natural. You know, you don't like uh, uh, it's not easy to deal with somebody that, you know, just just hates your guts. I mean, you want to be the popular guy and everything. But if if you're trying to make decisions based, well, that guy hates me, but he's a shit hockey player. But I'll give him power play time just so he likes me. I mean, you piss off another couple couple guys in that sense. And, uh, yeah, you know, you just you can't do that. So, I mean. Um, to be respected, I, I think, is the ultimate thing as a coach. And to be liked, I mean, you know, that's, uh, you know, pe- people will get over that because at the end of the day, I, I hope that I was respected for the decisions I made and ultimately led to, to being a winner. And if I tried to please everybody, you know, I would have ended up pissing off everybody. You know, you don't know how the team would have responded. You don't know if we would have ever been winners. So um, that was something that always stuck out with me is, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the key to success is, but the key to failure is trying to please everybody. It's great. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more, Benny. And uh, uh, the, the the thing is, is you're going to make. You're not always going to be right. But I, I, I again, respect. I think is a lot more important than people liking you. And you know what? The way I look at it is, if they respect you and and you win, then they're going to like you. Because you exactly. guys are winning, so everybody's going to like you. Hand in hand, yeah. So, so you get you get the respect from the players. You go out, you win, and then they like you because you're a winner, and that's the way I look at it. Well, if it's any consolation, guys, I know I've had, we, I've had conversations with players before, and Scotty Bowman, of course, one of the greatest coaches in the history of the game. The question that came up: What was it about him that players just sort of went to on him? Did they actually even like him? Couldn't stand him, but respected him. No. And they won. Yeah. So now you for you guys, here's a fun one for you. We always ask Ben. You've obviously in the minor leagues, you experience a lot of bizarre things. We've heard some doozies from coaches driving the bus, trainers going in goal, players looking, phoning players in local towns, trying to fill a roster, cold showers, equipment stolen, all the couple of the bizarre things you've seen in the league in your few years. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Uh, there, there is a lot of them, um, but I, I don't want to mention a name here just because okay. you don't have the guy. To. The guy might be embarrassed, but the guy's played in the NHL before. Um, you know, we had him in the ECHL. He was a champion with us. I mean, you know, if you're a Fort Wayne Comet fan, it's probably not tough to figure out. But 
we had a guy on our team. I came in at the intermission. This was when I was an assistant coach at the time. And I saw he just had his skates and his shin pads on. He didn't wear a jock. So, you know, his ass crack, crack is exposed. And he's just got the, the shinners and the skates. He's standing up and he's taking a piss in the shower. I'm like, what are you? I was like, what are you? What the fuck are you doing? He says, oh, I'm pissing on my stick. And I said, like, what? He's pissing on his stick because he's hit a rut. And his way of getting out of his scoring troubles was to piss all over his stick. And I'm looking at this guy like, you are fucked. And he went out and scored a goal in the next period. <laughs> but nobody wanted to celebrate with him because it's dripping urine off the toe of the blade. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's oh, a pretty good God. one, Spread. Top that one. I can't top that one. I, I, I can tell you one thing, and he's the president of South Carolina now, Rob Cannon was probably the craziest son of a bitch I ever coached. And the guy never drank. He never drank his whole life. He, he has never drank. But he would do – he would just leave the dressing room and he would run around the rink with no clothes on. Just for the hell of it. I mean, eat goldfish. Like he'd be at someone's apartment, he'd pull a goldfish out of the thing and just eat it. You know, I mean, the crazy things that this guy did. And the amazing thing was he wasn't even drinking or anything. So <laughs> that made it even worse. <laughs> I think Justin told me some of those stories about the goldfish when you yeah. guys were partying at the house. He was nine years old and he's got one of the guys eating his friggin' fish out of his tank. <laughs> Uh, now, speaking along those lines also, Ben, you can't get off that easy. Pranks have been a part of hockey since the puck became rubber. Any Now, as a coach, you may not have – may hear a lot of them. Has any of the players ever got to you first off and any of the good ones you've heard over your years? Wait, can you say that again? Oh, pranks. Pranks. I mean, yeah, if you Google my name right now, if you Google it, it says Bruce Boudreaux's daughter. So somebody <laughs> along the way has found a way to do the Google search. And every time my name comes up, they've got it as Bruce Boudreaux's daughter. And I don't know how to fix the fucking thing. And it's been there for at least five or six years. And I've got one name, one name on the back of my head. And, and I can only think it was maybe this one guy because he was really good with computers. And he was a, a big computer nerd, but I had scratched him for a game and he was pissed off. And <laughs> I was this young little six week assistant coach and showed up like a week later. So that's, that's where I think somebody really ended up screwing me five or six years ago. Cause it's brought up all the time. I said, I know I can't do it. I can't change it. I don't know how to. That's pretty okay, funny. So that's big. That is taking it to a whole new level. Yeah. When right. you're changing someone's <laughs> that's quite and if anybody that, that, that's... Yeah, if anybody that's watching this show wants to help me out and figure out how to actually change it, I mean you know, maybe that's why I don't got maybe that's why I don't know, the first transgender coach or something. Well, <laughs> Ben, as always, time is uh, always against us. Uh, we want to th we're right down at our last minute here, but we want to thank you so much for joining us today. We want to wish you the best of luck moving forward. I hope you get a 10-year contract with uh, Fort Wayne and continue to keep winning, but not too much, I guess, with uh, Justin going back to Cincinnati, it looks like, unless you can sway him over. And yeah. uh, maybe we can do a negotiation there. We got his dad here in the line. But 
Anyway, you want to thank you so much for joining us. Squid, any final thoughts for Ben? Oh, just Ben, I, uh, congratulations again. And uh, I know my, my son has spoke very highly of you and how you treated him and, and, uh, as a player and everything. And he said, he said he didn't treat me any special or any different than anybody else. He just treated me very well. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's a good kid, and, and, and he, re he, he respected the fact that you treated him well. So I just wanted to say that. Well, I really appreciate that. And uh, Mike, Rick, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. I hope it's not the last time. I hope we get no, to we'll bring a few back more again. stories and hopefully have a little bit more hardware for the next time. So, Rick, this is the, the, the third 76 in a row that I know you've shot. So you've either got to go lower or higher next time. So we have something <laughs> to talk about. It's, it's actually the fourth. <laughs> the fourth in a row. Yeah. So I gotta go. I gotta go 73 or four tomorrow. Yeah, get those strokes down. Quit, uh, quit playing from the rafters. <laughs> Alrighty, Benny. Thanks a lot for having us, uh, joining us today, man. And good luck. And we'll be in touch with you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Okay, thanks, Ben. Yeah.